Welcome to the HSCT Warriors Podcast, bringing voice to the journeys of HSCT Warriors worldwide. I'm Dr. Jen Stansberry Koenig, or Zen Jen, moderator of meaningful conversations and convener of community. As we continue to grow the HSCT Warrior community, illuminate the invisibilities of autoimmune disease, recognize the possibilities of a future free from disease progression, connect through our shared experiences, and advocate for an inclusive society. I'm so glad you've joined us. Thanks so much, Erin, for joining us. Yes. I'm grateful to you for sharing your your story with MS and HSCT. And you live in Washington, right? So I'm curious about whether or not you considered applying in Seattle. I did. I actually started the process of applying in Seattle. So with their clinical trial, it was, um, I didn't qualify for the trial. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So I'm, the reason I didn't qualify was because I didn't have an MRI. This is at least what I understand. Um, my MRI did not show an, an enhanced lesion. So that's what I was told. Interesting. Well, and maybe mm-hmm. we just need to back up and start from the very beginning with your diagnosis or the symptoms that led up to your diagnosis. How long did it take to get diagnosed? And what was just your experience with diagnosis that ultimately led to HSCT? I feel like I was really lucky with my diagnosis, actually. I've heard so many stories about people that it takes so long and they get misdiagnosed. Um, I was young. I was in high school when I was diagnosed in, um, it was about 1995. So I had a, it was a bout of optic neuritis. Mm. Um, and I was sitting in my high school English class and I will never forget. I just, all of a sudden there was a huge black spot in the middle of my vision and extreme intense pain, like nothing I've ever experienced before. It was very unusual. So they took me to the office and my parents picked me up and um, we, I lived in a small town, which is even crazier. My ophthalmologist quickly recognized uh, what it was and yeah, it was crazy. He, I mean, I remember the look on his face was kind of like, uh, this is not what we want in a teenager. Right, no. Yeah, so I he referred me. Um, two days later, I was in a neuro ophthalmologist office, and a couple days after that, I was in a neurologist office, and then a couple days after that, I had an MRI, and then my MRI did not at that point show any lesions, but people seemed to be really concerned that there was a possibility that this was the first relapse of MS. And so they did a spinal tap and how did they feel? Gosh, you were so young. Yeah. um, Not good. (laughs) It wasn't fun, but yeah, no, it did not feel good. It was big, long needle. Um, But 
I, again, I just, there was all these things that everybody did right, you know, to get an, a super early diagnosis. Like sure. I, you know, so the spinal tap did show whatever they were looking for. They were looking for, I don't remember exactly how it all goes, but they found what they were expecting to find. So at that point, it was kind of like a pre-diagnosis. And they basically said it's just a waiting game. It's just a matter of time until you do have a relapse. And at that point, then we'll start talking about um, where we're going to go. And it was probably, I don't know, three or four months later that I had, uh, I lost all the sensation in my hands Mm. to the point where I could, like, I was in biology class carrying um, a beaker, which had agar in it, the stuff you boil for cultures. And I went over and I handed it to my biology teacher and she looked at me, was like, you have, you're not using your mitts. And I put the beaker down and my hands were totally burnt. Oh my gosh. And I, yeah. So that was when then they did an MRI and they found lesions and they were like, yes. So now you have an official diagnosis. So yikes. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was yikes. But they got me on um, medication right away. So I don't know. I think that that was all a good thing. Sure. So what did you start on? Beta Seron. Okay. So that was the only um, option back then, right? Yep. That was it. And it was, um, I mean, at that point it was still new. So that was it. We just kind of spent about 24 years going from medication to medication to medication. Um, they, they would work for a little bit and then stop working or I would just have really bad reactions to, um, Mm. um, you know, you get the JC virus thing and all, all the things. Yeah. So my symptoms also started in high school, but I did not get a diagnosis. So good for you. Did you go look? Did, did you realize there was something wrong? Yeah, I saw several neurologists and had multiple. Well, I, I think my first MRI was when I was 20. And people told me that it was just all in my head. <clears throat> Doctors would tell me it's all in your head and I'd get frustrated and still be in pain. And then they like just wouldn't see anything on an MRI. So there was just it took 16 years to be diagnosed. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Like I was convinced, well, maybe the shocking pain is because I carry serving tra- like trays when I was a server in a restaurant, right? I'd carry trays in my left hand. So I had just convinced myself it's just fatigue from heavy trays or something. Oh, wow. Yeah. Lucky you, <laughs> right? To yeah. have good doctors that are answering the right questions at the right time so that you fast track to diagnosis. A hundred percent. And not that it's fun, right? To be diagnosed or even be so young and trying out these drugs, even as they come onto market. Like, did you have doubts as you would change medications? Um, I, (laughs) I didn't. Um, 
because again, I don't know how I got so lucky, but I just ended up with the most amazing doctors. So when I left Colorado to come out here to go to college, that was a big transition for me. And now that I'm a parent looking back, I I can't imagine what it was like for my parents to let me go. Um, But they were, you know, they were amazing. We spent time trying to find doctors out here in Portland because that's where I was. I was actually in school in Portland. And we did run into one doctor who said that he would not uh, treat me because it was not a good idea for me to be here. And I was never going to be able to live on my own. And I should basically go home and let my parents take care of me. Wow. And yeah. So that was, you know, so that was the only experience I've ever had. And we were quick to say, no, thank you. Um, we'll keep looking around. Right. <laughs> thanks for your opinion, but, but no, no thanks. thanks. Yeah. <laughs> so I ended up at, uh, OHSU and I mean, essentially I tell people like he took care of me from the time I was 18 years old and it was, he was like a parent to me. He, he was very concerned about my well being, and you know, I went through lots of bouts of steroids as well because my relapses wouldn't stop. They just kept going and going and going. But he never put me on a medication until he felt like there was enough information and it was safe. So, you know, they, we'd have visits and he would say, like, there's this new medicine out that we're looking at and I think it's going to be really promising. So let's give it some time and see. Or he would say, there's a new one out, but I don't feel super comfortable with it because of X, Y, and Z. So we're going to skip that. So I, I just trusted him. That's phenomenal, though, to find someone who's willing to extend that level of care. Yeah. Yeah, it, it really was. And he actually was probably, uh, say, five, maybe now it's, gosh, time flies, maybe six years ago or so, I was not having success with the, uh, what was it at the time? Mm -hmm. The Sabri. Sabri. Well, especially if you're JC positive. Right. That was the issue. So I had been on it and then they came out with, all that information. And then they came out with the test and he said, okay, you know, we're all of our patients are being tested. And so I came back positive and immediately it was taken off of it. Sure. Although you're supposed to wean off of that, which I realized after I stopped it as well. Oh, you are JC positive. Yeah. Oh no. You're how, what do you mean? You're supposed to wean off of it. Apparently you aren't (laughs) supposed to stop Tysabri abruptly. And I don't know how you like dose down or maybe you just need to be supported by a doctor as your body processes out of having been on Tysabri, but I didn't do that. And it probably just exacerbated my disease at the time. I didn't do that either. I didn't know that was a thing. It sounds like though you started Tysabri when it first came to market. And then as these tests rolled out, they realized, oh, you probably shouldn't be on this if you test positive for JC antibodies. Yes. 
that is, yeah. So maybe they didn't know that at the time, but it sounds like they knew that, but they didn't tell you that. Well, they knew that they wanted to just monitor my antibody levels. I was positive. And Mm. so we tested for the JC antibodies, but they weren't very high. So they felt okay with me starting it. And then I just had to monitor my levels. And even though they increased and I was physically getting significantly worse being on Tysabri, they were like, oh, well, but, you know, it's the best drug we have right now. So, oh. It's this or nothing. And I'm like, well, then it'll be nothing. Oh, my gosh. That is such a that is that is, I think, one of the hardest things about chronic diseases is when you're given that ultimatum. Like, right. OK. Right. Well, because at the, right. And at the same time, because I was getting so much worse, my primary care physician, thankfully, was like, there's got to be something else going on. So we tested for Lyme disease antibodies, and sure enough, I have six of the eight. You only oh. need two to test positive. <laughs> that is crazy. Well, it's, it's even crazier that I took that test to my neurologist and said, so what now? And he said, well, that test is not approved by the CDC, so we don't go by oh that test. Gosh. And we don't, you're going to have oh. to see our infectious disease specialist. So I did. And I took their test approved by the CDC and I was off. I was one point away from a positive result. Oh, so what they say, no, you don't have it. Correct. Oh, my goodness. And so I said, I'm done with you. (laughs) I'm done with you. I'm done with Tysabri. I just and it turns out the antibiotic that I started on to treat the chronic Lyme disease minocycline. If you get a diagnosis for Lyme disease quickly after you notice a tick bite, They'll put you on doxycycline. I started uh-huh. on mo- minocycline because it's better at breaking down the biofilms that the spirochetes form around themselves to hide out in your body. And it turns out doctors in Canada will prescribe minocycline to treat multiple sclerosis. No way. And I thought, well, that's interesting. So at wow. least I was on that antibiotic, right? And then I went to Columbia University to try and figure out which one is it? <laughs> do I have MS or do I have Lyme disease? And they said, well, you probably have both. MS is usually triggered by some kind of infection. And like I had oh Epstein-Barr, like I had mono in high school and probably ended up with Lyme disease in high school because I used to rock climb and hike all the time in the Red River Gorge, Stanley Boone National Forest. So surely I picked up Lyme disease while I was there. I just didn't know. That Lyme disease, I know this isn't about Lyme disease, but it, <laughs> it is. And it's not it about is, me. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. So I have a friend, a very close friend, who it took her forever to get diagnosed with Lyme disease. And that's actually how we connected is um, we met at church and we were talking about chronic illnesses. And she's like, I have, you know, she whatever it was like she said she had Lyme disease. I didn't even realize really what Lyme disease was. And she kind of followed me out and she was like, Hey, you know, she's a mom of a young one. And she's like, I think we have a lot in common. We should go chat sometime. And now we're, you know, super close. Awesome. And it was just so crazy to learn about Lyme disease because in so many ways, it's such a strange, curious disease that people really also are like, no, there's nothing wrong with you. Yep. (laughs) Oh, and you had both. Indeed. Wow. But yeah, this is not about me. (laughs) 
well, it's, it's a conversation and there's there, I think, you know, that's another thing with MS that goes into it. There are so many factors, right? Yes. You don't know. So, and doctors don't uh, know. And it's great that you found doctors that did know. Yeah. And, oh, right. That's what we, that's where I was headed. So my, my neurologist, um, told me when I had to go get off of Tasabri that Ocrevus was, it, I don't know if it was out yet or it was super close to being out. It must've been out or I don't remember. It's all kind of blurs together, but he said, if this doesn't work for you, I don't want you to be too discouraged. Um, there are a lot of people who are studying stem cell therapies for MS. Hmm. And I was like, huh, that's interesting. And I told them that I really didn't have any idea what he meant by that. And he said, well, essentially, they're, they're trying to figure out if we can use um, your own stem cells to regrow your immune system. I was like, huh, that's interesting. And you know, he just kind of planted that little seed and we really didn't talk much more about it. And then it was about, I don't know, a, a year later that he retired and I found a, a new neurologist. But I just I just feel like he planted that little seed and I trusted him. And so when I discovered HSCT and realized that, I mean, that's what he was talking about, um, that I felt so much more comfortable that it wasn't some off the mat, like crazy off the wall idea. Sure. So how did you find HSCT? Um, I have, uh, two little ones. They're not little anymore. I don't know. I keep saying that they're 14 and 10. (laughs) (laughs) I wish they were little. Me too. Um, I have a 10 year old that's going on 30. Oh my gosh. It's crazy. So I was actually at just hanging out with some parent friends and just talking about whatever and mentioned, you know, somehow my MS came up and uh, one of the gals said, oh my gosh, I have a acquaintance who, you know, she was on a baseball team or something. She wasn't, her kid was. And she said she went to uh, Chicago and had this crazy thing done and she's never felt better and she's been fine for like six years. Wow. Yeah. I was like, what, what, what is this crazy thing that she had done? So she connected me with her. And then simultaneously, I saw a very small little, um, I don't know, wouldn't call it like a, not an ad, but a announcement, a small little announcement in the National MS Society magazine, talking about clinical trials. At that time, I had just gotten my new neurologist and I looked up these clinical trials and it happened to be that my neurologist was in charge of getting it started at OHSU. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I was like, huh, the stars are aligning. This is crazy. Like everything's pointing to the direction that I need to keep looking at this. So that was all of that happened December of 2019. And I was in Mexico um, by March of 2020. Oh, wow. And so yeah. 
So you pursued the clinical trial, but you did not qualify, you mentioned. Correct. Yep. I, th- yep, exactly. And I, you know, my husband and I went and we talked to my neurologist and we basically asked her her opinion. He wanted to make sure that this wasn't like way too drastic, right? Because I'm very mobile right now. I haven't always been, but I am now. I was before I got HSCT, like I can run. And I think that often is a measure for people of, they think that that defines disability, right? If you can walk, you're fine. Sure, the EDSS. Yeah. Um, And so, you know, in his mind, he just wanted to be sure that this wasn't, you know, some way extreme thing and that, you know, we weren't taking dangerous, drastic measures that weren't going to pay off. Um, And she very much said, no, I do not think it's extreme. Um, Erin is continuing to have disease progression. I understand like her MRI is not, you know, there's no lesions that are lighting up, but that does not mean that her MS is not active. And, you know, she's like, I'm sorry, you don't qualify for the clinical trials. But she also said, um, she said, you know, even if you did qualify for the clinical trials, there is no, because they're clinical trials, there's no guarantee you would be in the lot that gets the transplant. Right. So do you really want to take that risk? Interesting. Um, mm-hmm. And so when did you find Mexico or was that part of your conversation with her? That was part of our conversation. Um, I found, I just, you know, before we went in, I looked up HSCT and of course, you know, I think you quickly can figure out that Russia and Mexico seem to be two places that are easy being that they take people without a bunch of, you know, pre-qualifications to get in. Um, and so we talked to her about both places and, you know, for different reasons, we chose Mexico and she, yeah, that, I mean, I preferred Mexico cause it's closer. <laughs> that was one, sure. you know, big reason for me. And I didn't have to get a visa. Well, <laughs> yeah. like, That's easy. Right. Exactly. And it's a shorter flight home. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, you know, again, yeah, just really HSCT seems to be, you know, listening to so many people talk about it and, you know, on your podcast, there are so many people that just have such sad experiences. You know, they go, they want to have this done and their medical professionals around them are just not positive about it. I don't, I think a lot of it is they're just, they don't know. Right. They're misinformed Yep. or under-informed. Yep. And MS is such a crazy disease. I'm sure it's hard to keep up with everything. And if you don't have like a, I'm assuming, I don't know, but if you have a general neurologist, they're not just treating MS, right? I mean, they're treating a bunch of neurological conditions. Sure. So, you know, how much can they really know about it? Right. Be keen on the latest and greatest. Mm-hmm. So why was it important for you to participate in the podcast? I honestly, because I want people to understand the, that having MS and having HSCT is not just about, you know, a a diagnosis and a recovery to me. I think that anybody who can have 
an experience like getting HSCT and uh, it it's it's life changing. I guess it, I mean totally life changing, and not in a cliche kind of way. I mean my life is not just physically and mentally different, but the my outlook is has changed drastically um, all the way around. And I think it's really important for people to understand that having a chronic disease does not mean life is over. And with or without HSCT, people can have a very fulfilling life. And then when you come across something like HSCT, it's, it just, um, it, it reframes how you look at the medical world, I think. Um, at least it did for me. And I think it's important for people to have a broader view and really advocate for their own health and well-being mm. and and look at look at other options. Um, at the same time, understanding that there are experts out there who do care about you. You know, I I feel like there is so much negativity about the medical world and the pharmaceutical companies. And um, there are so many things that I could go on about that are extremely discouraging to me. They don't make sense. I don't, I don't get it, but I try really hard to focus on the things that have gone well. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's part of, I think that's part of why I've healed so well, honestly. Um, shifting your focus to stay mm -hmm. positive. Yeah. It's, it's exhausting to, um, live in a space where you're constantly trying to climb out of a dark hole. Indeed. Right. And when you're recovering from HSCT or you're trying to decide whether that's the right choice for you, I think that, you know, trying to climb out of that dark hole or, um, keep yourself from falling into it. You know, we know that that's not good for MS. Right. Like, and so I just want people who are thinking about it or have done it and are in the midst of recovering to really try and spin things like how lucky are we that HSCT is here? Right. Like, Indeed. It's unfortunate that it's not, you know, readily available to us in the United States yet. And it's unfortunate that doctors don't know a lot about it yet, but it's kind of that growth mindset. Like here, my teachers, you know, talk sure. to the kids, like, yeah. <laughs> it's like, I don't know how to do this yet. And I think that people do their best with what they have, generally speaking. Sure. And I think as, you know, somebody with MS thinking about HSCT, that you, you decide if it's right for you. And then you surround yourself with people who will support you. And the people who don't, or, you know, the medical professionals who are unsure or scared about it. And, you know, the companies that don't seem to be on board with like actually finding a cure, all of those things are real. But the more energy you put into being mad and frustrated with those things, the less energy you have to move forward and be well. And be in the right place. Mm -hmm. 
So March of 2020, you found yourself in Mexico, and that's right as the pandemic was hitting, right? Oh, yes, it was. <laughs> Gee whiz. So how did that play into everything? Uh, it was insane. Um, I mean, my transplant was, the actual transplant was March 15th. And it was a week before that, that my, so my mom was with me in Mexico. My dad was here with my husband helping with the kids. Okay. And uh, my, my husband called me. He's like, I don't know what's going on. This thing called the coronavirus. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently the kids are out of school for a little bit. I was like, what? And you know, I'm in my own little bubble, sure. right? I, I'm just, you know, every day is something and I've got my, my schedule when I get my shots and when I have my procedures and all of these things. And, um, you know, I was kind of chuckling to him. I was like, huh, well, I'm sure they'll go back soon. Like, right. you know, we had no idea. No idea. This. Yeah. No, no idea. And then, um, bless her heart, my mom, you know, I saw, I, I was watching her watch the news at one point. I was like, what's wrong, mom? And she goes, oh, nothing. It's <laughs> like, uh, trying to what do keep you mean, your nothing? bubble positive. That's great. <laughs> and there was all these conversations about borders closing and sure. travel being shut down. And so at that point, I wasn't worried about like contracting COVID, I was, I, I was like, how am I going to get home? Sure. Like, are, are they going to let me go home? Um, so at that point, honestly, to keep my bubble positive, I told Matt and my mom, I was like, I need you two to deal with coronavirus and you guys can worry about coronavirus and all of these things. I don't want to, I honestly, like, I want to live in my ignorant bubble for a while and take care of myself Sure. and not, not worry about the kids and school and not worry about, you know, my husband was, of course he was, he was so scared about not just if I could get home, but if I get home with no immune system, how are you going to get home when all of, you know, there's this very contagious virus out there who, you know, we're finding out is killing people like very unpredictable. Yeah. Yeah. So I put all of my trust in those two and I was like, you guys talk to each other about it. I don't, you make the plan. So this is two weeks before, you know, I'm supposed to leave and all of Matt's energy is being put on, you know, me getting home. And I think it was actually a good thing for him because it gave him something to focus on and a way, I think, for him to take care of me and help me from far away. Because like, yeah. it's hard. Well, yeah, purpose you know? can be really important. Yeah. So, you know, the they made some changes to protocol in the core building where we stayed and people were not allowed in and out unless you're a patient. Um, my cousin has lived in Mexico for about 20 years now. Mm. And she lived, well, she's moved to a different part of Mexico, but at that point she lived in Mexico City. So she had come down um, a couple times to just 
you know, get out, walk around with us. And by the middle of March, she was not allowed to come in the building anymore. And she was the one who actually helped me get, you know, she helped me get home. So there, it was weird. You know, people, we had to wear masks anyway, because they have you wearing masks because your immune system and whatnot. But then it got much more serious and people were definitely on you if you didn't have your mask on, which was, I was confused kind of because I thought, well, we're all locked in this building anyway. We don't, how could we get it? We're not, you know, so there were, and there were so many unanswered questions so early on. This was like so early. Yeah. The very beginning of everything shutting down. So were you in Puebla or Monterey? I was in Puebla. Okay. Yeah. So, um, and I, I specifically chose Puebla. I hear a lot of people, um, that you've talked to, you know, have chosen one or the other for different reasons. I specifically chose Puebla because my mom and I thought it would be easier to just have everything right there for us and not have to worry about grocery shopping and preparing our own food. And, um, I have to say that until I lost my appetite, their food was phenomenal. Mm. It was so good. And I really wish I could go back and have some of their fresh squeezed juices. Mm, sure. So, yeah, I mean, the the doctors talked to us about it. They were very, um, I thought that they were very upfront based on the little information they had. Uh, there was definitely frustration and worry on people's minds just because you have so many questions they can't be answered you know they don't have the answers right but I thought they did a really good job with what they had taking care of us and keeping us safe and um you know they quickly we all got tested um Mexico seemed to get tests very quickly I don't know if it was just this lab or how they got them but Mm. they tested all of us they tested our caregivers um everybody was fine and then they tested us again before we left. And we were all given that paperwork in case we needed it for travel purposes. So they were on top of that. That was good. That is good. So what, maybe that is your most memorable experience, but do you have any mm-hmm. memories from your time in Puebla? What's a memorable experience yeah. from there? Um, there was a woman who, you know, like a lot of MS people suffered from, extreme spasticity, which spasticity and HSCT is a confusing thing to me. It's interesting that it seems that people continue to have complications with it, but so many other things seem to get better. I think it's just part of the roller coaster. Um, But going back, so she was um, using a wheelchair and we would get in the van to go to the clinic to have our chemo and, you know, do the aphoresis and have, you know, the transplants. And it was, let's see, day, it was after the third chemo treatment. We were all sitting in the van and up until that point, she had had to have people help her lift her legs up into the van to get in. And that day she was like, you know what? I, I think I can do this today. Wow. And she got in the van by herself. 
And I mean, she was crying. I was crying. My mom was crying. And, um, you know, she, her mom was not able to be there because she was having her own medical complications. Mm. So her, her auntie was with her. Um, but she and my mom had a really sweet little connection. And that's so important for caregivers to feel supported. Yeah, it really is. And she looked at my mom and she goes, mom, look, I'm in, I got it. Awesome. And it was just, I, I mean, it was like she had just, you know, won a Grammy. People were over the moon excited for her. The look on her face was like, all of this is like going to be worth it. Mm. Um, and, you know, the, oh, it, it, it was, it was a small moment that represented so much of what I think HSCT is for people with autoimmune diseases mm. right now who find it, you know, it's, it is like that golden ticket that, you know, yeah, it, it, it was amazing. Right. It was just incredible. And I mean, the relationships that I built there, I, I have so many, um, warriors, you know, now that are, they're my, my confidants, my Mm. friends, part of, there's another person that was in my group who is, he's working on something called sale MS, which is, he's putting together a scenario where people with MS can go and feel empowered and sail sailboats. And just to be a part of things like that, I think is really, you know, not only healing, physically healing, but just finding like-minded people that, you know, are in the fight and want to fight the fight, you know? It's hopeful. Yeah. Yeah. Super hopeful. I I think that is the biggest, like, I guess it's a lot of memories, but all of my memories there were, you know, I didn't feel good, but besides that. (laughs) Sure. Amazing. Well, so how are you doing now a year post transplant? I am doing super well. Um, I kind of check myself every once in a while and wonder if, you know, all this amazing positive attitude I have is because I've recovered so well. Um, I, not everybody has had the same experience. I know my roller coaster has been a lot less volatile than a lot of people's. I, you know, when I came home because of COVID, I, I had to isolate in my room, in my house for, oh, at that point it was, I think, I think I was in there for like 16 days. Oh, wow. How did that feel? It was really hard. It was really hard to come home and not be able to hug my family. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, it sucked. <laughs> um, yeah, I'll never forget my daughter running up to me as soon as we pulled in the driveway. I don't even think the car door was open. And that hug, like that oh. meant the world to me. How old was she when you had your transplant? She turned seven in the time between mobilization and harvest. And then you get to come home for like almost two weeks. And she turned okay. seven in between the time that I had to go back. 
Okay. Yeah. So she remembered, I mean, she was well aware of what was going on. Very well. And once I found the opportunity for HSCT, like we connected her with her school counselor right away, just to talk about anxiety and just help her feel supported mm-hmm. to ask questions and feel anxiety and be uncertain because she was so mm-hmm. young. Like we wanted to reduce the tra- any traumatic impact. Yep. Yep. That like we did the same thing for our kiddos and awesome. you know, JJ, he's middle school. I think it was, I don't, I shouldn't say it was easier. Not necessarily at all, but I, yeah. So it, it was real weird to be in my room. I bet. I, I mean, essentially parenting kind of from a closed door. Sure. <laughs> And Matt, every time I would open the door, poor guy, he was like, you can't be out here. Shut the door. It's like, oh, my gosh, are you serious? (laughs) So I honestly think that those couple weeks in my room listening to my family outside my door um, was mentally harder than going through HSCT. I bet. Oh, my gosh. It was... um, and, you know, it it wasn't just that I was stuck in there. It was that I hadn't seen my fa- family, you know, for four weeks. And then I've got these other other weeks where I'm in my room. And then when I finally did get out, it sounds like I was in prison. Right. I, I nobody would get near me. Mm. It was it was like I they were so scared that something was going to happen to me. Nobody in my family would hug me for like another five days. I was like, you guys, this is crazy. And really hard. Yeah. Yeah. Really hard. And I know they were coming from a a place of love. Of course. Right. A hundred percent. But, and, you know, even as, you know, recovery went on, coronavirus was very real. So, we ended up actually, you know, the kids weren't back in school. Oh, it was insane. That was crazy. They were doing school from home and not really doing school from home. <laughs> what? I'm not sure right. what they were doing. Oh, my gosh. Um, and then, you know, there's the summers coming up and I'm only two and a half months post transplant. And already at that point, we could see their mental state was not good, not good at all. Um, and you know, you've got a daughter, you, you saw it happen. It's right. Isolation is not good for anybody, let alone these kids who are mm. entering adolescence. So we talked to a couple super amazing, um, families and made a really tough decision. Um, for us, like I kind of felt like I was shipping my kids away, but we had our kids go stay with their friends, families for the summer and isolate with them and be in their little bubble because there was going to be absolutely no way anybody could get anywhere near our house or near me, like zero. So all of that to say, I had nothing to focus on but healing. Sure. I mean, I, I was home. And I like to stay busy and I'm a pretty active person. So, you know, in some ways, coronavirus 
the pace. I had to change my pace of life anyway. And I think that that helped me um, with my recovery because, sure. you know, I was home and it was Matt and I and I wasn't worried about the kids because they were off with their friends having a good time with those families. And so I, I had a couple months where all I was doing was taking care of m- myself. Um, That's awesome. It was awesome. And so kind of, you know, coronavirus had some crazy things, but, you know, everybody talks about how horrible 2020 was. And every time I hear that, I'm like, not for me. Right. I've got HSCT. Sure. Well, and so what were some of those strategies of self-care that you got to focus on? Um, healthy eating, because I was only fixing food for my husband and myself. So, um, you know, I was just able, I had all the time in the world to just make sure I was eating whole foods. Um, and I was outside moving every day. I started just with a walk, walking as, you know, far as I could and eventually got myself back up to running and doing lots of stretching and yoga and, um, keeping a really good sleep schedule, Mm, you know, so important, so important. And it's interesting to look back and think of how rested I felt. And I, I know I felt rested because I was moving my body. I was eating well, I was sleeping well, you know, I, I had a, a routine that was really easy to manage and very predictable. Um, you know, I wasn't working, so I didn't have that kind of external stress. I didn't have timelines that I had to worry about for somebody else or things I had to accomplish or, you know, stay up to finish. Um, they're, they're, it was just so simple. You know, my life was so easy, really. Um, well, and that's such a valuable lesson, right? That the less stress and the easier it can be, the better you can do with recovery. Yep. Yeah. And yes, a hundred percent. And I had so many people that wanted to help, you know, we had everybody in the world was calling to see if we needed groceries um, because Matt as well, he didn't leave the house either. You know, he did not want to go to the grocery store, even with a mask on and risk bringing home coronavirus. He was really worried about it. So we called on our friends. I mean, we didn't even have to call on them. They called us. And, That's you know, amazing. It was, it was so awesome. So I think it was a combination of just wellness, you know, diet, your standard diet, exercise, and mentally having a really good support system that um, we were, we used. I think that that is something that people are afraid to do sometimes is to use the the support system that is around you, you know, or really for help. Yeah. Yep. People want to help. Yes. I think we forget that sometimes, um, you know, and I think you and I have talked about that as far as fundraising goes, like yes. it, people want to help you. Um, and sometimes it's scary and it feels vulnerable to ask for help and to let people help. But I think sometimes if we, if we remember that, letting people help us is also part of their well-being that Indeed. It, it, 
it makes them it you know it provides them benefits too it's not it's not a one-way street i feel like Mm. supporting other people is it's a two-way street i mean there's research out there that talks about serving other people reduces your own stress levels sure So, so do you think that's a superpower you gained or is there something else in a superpower that you gained from your experience with hsct no, I I think the superpower that I gained is uh, just a serious amount of energy to really um, just helping other people and empowering other people to help each other, you know, just giving back and working together to, you know, and not just with HSCT, but just the world, make the world a better place. The, you know, I always thought of myself as a positive you know, a positive person. And I, it just was affirmation that when you surround yourself with positivity and you carry that mindset with you, that you just, you feel better. And I saw that, um, in Mexico, you know, there was some really people health wise were really struggling, like way worse than me. And they, were so positive. I, I mean, in my group of, I don't know, there was uh, 12-ish people there. I mean, people, there was some that had to go to the hospital because they were so sick or they, you know, had things happen, but they were okay. And I know they were okay because in the midst of all of it, they, they were just full of gratitude and so happy that they had this opportunity. Mm. So I think that just kind of continued to fuel, to fuel me as, you know, humans are pretty powerful creatures and the power that we have inside of us to help each other is remarkable. And I think I just want to keep carrying that on. And so I know you have funneled some of that energy into starting a nonprofit to help with fundraising and help support other people along their way, which is amazing. And even participating in our webinars with HSCT Warriors to help inform others with tips and strategies to fundraise their way to HSCT. And I tell us a little bit more about this new initiative you're trying to get up and running. Um, it It's a organization. It's called PAVE. Uh, pave it forward. It's P-A-A-V. So like, you know, pay it forward. Um, The idea is to raise money from events and um, any kind of sponsorship so that we can scholarship people and help support uh, them financially to get HSCT. That's amazing. Yeah, it's, it's really fun. I just, it's so fun. I'm so on fire for it. It's really exciting. We're about to have our first t-shirts printed today. Oh, neat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's fun. And your first event sometime this summer, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, June 26th. And, you know, I kind of went through a bunch of different um, scenarios. I'm a runner when I can run. Um, and so I wanted to celebrate my first stem cell birthday by running a half marathon, which I did run 13 miles, but it was before that. All of this to say that it morphed because I realized that running is definitely not an inclusive event. Mm. It's 
very, um, and even walking, like I should know this, right. I have MS. I, I, well, but if you didn't have the lesions incurred that interrupted your physical mobility, then yeah, it's understandable that not everyone realizes. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I actually, I feel, um, it was a, it was a growing experience for me. Honestly, the, the minute that I was like, wait a second, just because everybody else does everybody else, meaning, you know, there's lots of fundraising walks and runs, right. That, that it's like the thing to do, it seems to be. So I was talking to, you know, some friends and my cousin and I was like, you know what, let's just empower people to move their body in a way that makes them feel well and whole, whatever that means for you. Um, and I was in Seattle a while ago, taking a little run. Um, and I saw this man in a wheelchair. He was hauling. I was like, how? And like, he was, I mean, it was like a race wheelchair. And, you know, he had his his gloves on and he was sweating and he was drinking out of his water bottle. And I was like, wow, you are amazing to be doing this right now. Like you go, that's incredible. Um, and a lot of people love to swim and a lot of people love to go hike in nature. And a lot of people love yoga and people like to play basketball and, go snowshoeing, like whatever it is that makes you feel connected and whole. I think it's so important for us to remember to move our bodies Mm. somehow. And I know when I was, I was in a wheelchair for a little bit in um, college and it was devastating for me because I didn't adapt. I didn't know what to do with myself to keep my, to move. And I wasn't used to it. And it wasn't just scary. It just felt terrible. So I got to the point just because I couldn't move my legs well enough to walk around campus. I just quit doing everything altogether. And I know that there are people who have mobility issues and they're doing all sorts of things. You know, they're in physical therapy. They're doing MS gym. They're swimming. They're, you know, having people come help them stretch. Like, so that's part of the, that's part of my push to with this organization is just to encourage people to keep moving. And in that we can support HSCT. That's fantastic. I appreciate the inclusive approach. Thanks. It's fun. Well, it's a unique spin, right? Um, I think there are plenty of organizations out there that like to purport to be inclusive, but yeah, then depend solely on say a walk to raise dollars and that's not exactly inclusive. No, no. Well, thank you for that commitment. And thanks for sharing more. So um, Absolutely. we'll definitely look forward to that event in the summer yeah. and continuing thank conversations you. with HSCT Warriors to see how we can continue to be supportive of you and this initiative. Well, I am, I am just so, so impressed with HSCT Warriors. And I, it's, I don't know if I just lived in a little bubble or I just got so focused on what I was doing before I had HSCT. Somehow I didn't know you existed until after I had HSCT. Sure. Thinking about a year ago, even 
maybe our website was just super new, if even at all, because we incorporated in July of 2019. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, that would that would probably make more sense. July, August, September, October. Mm -hmm. So five months before I started looking at it. Right. So maybe that's it's a it's a lot of work I'm finding out. (laughs) Indeed, it is. And that's why and I like stronger together, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So and we'll, it's been really fun to listen to all of your podcasts. And I love your socials that you're doing, oh, by the way. Thank you. I think those are so awesome. And I people look forward to them. It's really cool. That's good to know. And yeah, I'm just awesome. so grateful that people are willing to share their stories. Yeah, it's a it, it's like a HSCT has a special little, the bonding, something that, you know, people definitely um, bond over it. It's pretty awesome. Yeah. Well, it is that transformational experience that can be so isolating. And so when you can connect with others who have been through the same thing, who just get it, mm-hmm. it can be a powerful connection. I'm grateful to be connected to you. I'm grateful to be connected to you too. Thank you. I like hearing that. What about your HSCT experience? What are you grateful for about your experience with HSCT that has gone unspoken? Um, I, I guess I really haven't talked much about how physically different I feel. I'm, I didn't know what it was like to feel well. And looking back, there were so many things when I was little, little things that I feelings like physical sensations I had that I know now are not normal. Mm. <laughs> like that's not normal, but I didn't know that. Right. We don't talk about, it. you know, we don't, you just grow up thinking that's how everybody feels. Sure. So I really, I just tell people like, I feel well, I, I don't, I, I feel like a, a cloud is kind of like taken off of me and I'm, my body feels like, it's supposed to feel. Um, my brain fog is so much better. Uh, I actually had to stop working because my cognitive function got so bad. Mm. Um, and that was really rough. Yeah. That's hard to just even acknowledge. Yeah. It was really, really hard. Um, so I've noticed that that has gotten a lot better. Um, I'm in less pain. I don't just feel icky. It's, it is amazing how good I feel. That is amazing. Yeah. I mean, everyone deserves to feel that, right? We do. Yep. Thanks so much for sharing your story with us. Oh, thanks for having me. It's, it's, it's so fun to be able to talk with other people and share experiences. And I have really found a lot of um, energy from the other people that you've had on your podcasts and everything that you guys do. So I'm honored to be here. Oh, thank you. It's an honor to have you. And like I said, to continue these conversations and figuring out ways we can help support people finding their way to HSCT. Absolutely. Even if they decide that, that it's not for them, right? That's everyone's individual choice, but just being more informed. Yep. Yep. And, and finding people you can ask questions, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, I guess, you know, that's really, I tell people, I'm, I'm an open book. I will tell you anything. I have whatever. And I'm not an expert by any means. That's the other thing, as I don't claim to be an HSCT 
expert. Sure. As no, neither do you. Do we. I know that. <laughs> <Right>. No. <Nope. laughs> and I think that that's that's part of the power in it. We aren't experts, but we're you know we can share our thoughts and have you know good conversations regardless of like you said whether we choose to do it or not. Right. Just being more aware that it's yep. an option to consider. Yep. And one more really quick thing. I just have to put a little plug in for the medical staff in the clinic that I was, I mean, highly intelligent people who really want people to be well. Mm. And I just think that we don't give enough credit to the people out there who are, you know, doing really advancing medicine in a very positive way. I just think it's important to remember that it is happening. And I have a new outlook on that because of HSCT. That's beautiful. I continue to hear amazing things about Puebla and Clinica Ruiz. Yeah. Phenomenal resource. I'm grateful for their dedication to offering HSCT. Yep. Yeah, it's awesome. I'm so glad you had such a good experience and are forever transformed. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for sharing it all here with us. I wish you all the best in health and wellness as you continue on your recovery roller coaster. Thank you, Jen. Yeah. I hope it stays smooth for you. Thank you. Be sure to visit our website where you can find notes from today's episode, submit ideas or feedback, and connect with resources and the HSCT Warriors Incorporated nonprofit. As always, special thanks to musical genius Billy Alitzauser for sharing his superpowers to create the soundtrack, edit, and produce the audio to make this podcast possible. You can find us both when you subscribe on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you find your podcasts. It has been so great to connect with warriors worldwide, and we would love to hear from you about how the podcast has helped your journey with autoimmune disease. Take a moment to connect with us online, on Instagram, or share this episode with someone you know that would enjoy listening. In the meantime, we hope you'll tune in next Wednesday for another episode highlighting another warrior. Until then, be a snowflake and embrace your superpowers. Be kind. Be well. Jen Stansberry Koenig and the producers disclaim medical influence and responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. If you think you have a medical problem, please contact a licensed physician.